Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. All right, so today we're going to talk about active shooters at work. Run, hide, fight, and more. That's right. So we're going to talk about what is an active shooter and what you should do in an active shooter situation. We'll talk about roles in, for leaders and managers, and we'll talk about some considerations for HR departments and the rest of the organization. And, you know, we, we get it that this is not a fun topic to talk about or even to think about, but, you know, not thinking about it can really cost you. This is a very low probability type of incident that could happen in the workplace, somewhere where you are, but the outcomes are of the highest stakes. So I suppose it's important for us to discuss, and we have some experience dealing with uh, the training and the types of methods that should be used in these types of situations. So let's start off with that, Chris, and talk a little bit about what is an active shooter and what you should do in an active shooter situation. What have been some of your own experiences in terms of training and experience in this area? Yeah, so first of all, Ben was about to be an active shooter on this episode due to technical difficulties that we've now surmounted. (laughs) (laughs) Second of all, you'll have to excuse the gallows humor because Ben and I come from a military background and that just kind of goes on with some of this stuff. You know, Filson needs to, I don't know, take his jacket while he's running from an active shooter. So if you get some of that humor, please give us a pass or send us a nasty email. It's, It's either one is fine. But um an active shooter is somebody with a loaded weapon that's actually shooting out in public, right? At a work environment, uh, you know, god forbid a school, um sporting event, that kind of thing. Yeah, but you've you've had some experience in the military, right? Give us yeah. give us your street cred. <laughs> well, I mean, I've been an infantry officer for, you know, what, seven and a half years. Um and, you know, we have like I was in the Tennessee National Guard before I moved out to Utah. And, and we did have a shooter that came and shot up some of our recruiters there um, going from recruiting station to recruiting station and and even uh, ended up at a Navy recruiting station, Ben. Right. Where yeah, it was actually the, the reserve, um, the Re- Navy Reserve Center in Chattanooga was where um, most of it happened. So, yeah. So, you know, you and I have both been in the military for a long time. We actually met in Afghanistan, as many of our listeners know, and we've. All, all along that way, had to do active shooter training, uh, thinking about these types of issues. So in addition to our organizational involvement on the civilian side, uh, we also have a fair amount of experience thinking about this and training for it uh, in our military capacity. You know, when, when we were in Afghanistan uh, together back in 2013, one emerging issue that was really on the forefront of our minds happened to be the uh, insider threat. And in that case, it was some Afghans who, whom we were training, whom we were advising, who had been either infiltrated or otherwise coerced by the bad guys, by the Taliban, to turn on us and shoot at their advisors, uh, their NATO um, counterparts. And so because of that, we had to do even more training. And it was certainly a huge part of our um, our approach in Afghanistan. So you know, it's something that you and I are probably unusually, um, I suppose, attuned to, given our experiences. Uh, 
but I think it's very important for us to maybe share some of, of that experience and share some of our perspective on this very important topic for people out there in organizations. Yeah, they, and it's, a, it's just important to treat this as a fire drill or mm-hmm. a tornado drill. This, this is something, you know, especially for our, you know, non-U.S. listeners. I mean, you guys know that there is a metric ton of weapons in the United States. And and well, some, well more than a metric ton. <laughs> yeah. Right. The, and, and civil unrest like the numbskulls at the Capitol riot and different political things that are coming out in the workplace. So it's worth just thinking about taking some common sense approaches. Don't put too much emotional weight on this other than, hey, it's something you got to think about, like buckling up your safety belt when you get in the car. Right. You can't um, ignore it. And we'll be referencing a really great document from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security as we go through this, because it outlines a number of key actions and ways of thinking that can really be helpful for you. And, you know, so you can check that out. We have a link to it in the show notes. If you're not so inclined to read, obviously listen to us talk about it because it has some great points in it. And we'll uh, we'll be going through those here as we go through the episode. So, um Let's go ahead and start, you know, in terms of thinking about active shooter scenarios and what individuals should do when an active shooter is in your vicinity. And as we suggested in the title, the thing to remember is run, hide, fight, and it's in that order. So the first thing you got to do is evacuate. Tell us more, Chris. Yeah, so the, and I hear this from the gun nuts that I, you know, I socialize some of those Facebook groups with gun owners and stuff like that. And, and I'll talk, you know, well, this is where I'm going to go stand and fight. Well, here's the thing. That's the darndest thing about guns is somebody does not have to have experience to accidentally kill the most experienced person. You can be the most crack shot, but that guy just squeezes off around without even aiming and it hits you and it's game over for you. There, there's no, like respawn like a video game so yeah, running this is not the this is not the movies this is not a video game get out of there right run is the smartest if you are the most experienced person you know the answer is to run you know you're right. not on a mi- at your place of work you're not on a military post that needs defending just get out of there grab people with you right tell them say hey larry there's a shooter let's go Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if Larry is in, is insistent on staying, don't let that hamper you, right? So first of all, you got to have that escape route in mind, have a plan in mind. So be aware of your surroundings. You know, when back back in the day when I used to actually teach in person in my professor role, I'm sure we'll get back to that at some point. But uh, you know, I would always, whenever I was in a classroom, make note of where are my exits, how could I potentially escape if something were going down. Um, and you know, if something is happening, if you hear about it, if you start to hear, uh, maybe sounds like fireworks, maybe you hear, um, people screaming and moving, maybe you get a report somehow, um, you know, via social media or via some sort of announcement, then you want to get out of there as quickly as possible. Leave your stuff behind. This is just like when you're on an airplane and they say, you know, don't take your carry on. If you're trying to get out of there, leave your stuff there get out of there um, and keep your hands visible while you're doing it. Why is that important? Yeah. So, you know, somebody's going to call some kind of response force and they're going to show up probably in a group of four 
cops or something, and you don't want to look like a, one of the shooters. And mm -hmm. one of the ways to do that is to put your hands up in the air and spread your fingers out as wide as possible. Right. Um, if, if you see the police coming, you know, or the response force coming from a certain direction, go ahead and follow behind that. They'll direct you if that's the wrong way to go. But generally, they're coming in through a direction that's already been cleared of any kind of danger. Right. So you want to follow the instructions of any police officers. Don't try to move anybody who's maybe wounded in your way. And when you are safe, then that's the time to call 911 if it's apparent that that hasn't happened already. So first step is run. Evacuate the area. Now, if you can't run, if evacuation is not possible, your next option is to hide. So what kinds of hiding places should you be looking for? Well, you know, normally we think about two types of hiding. It's cover and concealment, right? Yeah. So concealment would be like the curtains. Mm -hmm. Right. If that's all you got, that's better than nothing. Right. But that's curtains not going to stop a bullet. Right. Right. And so that's concealment. It's concealing you from view. Now, cover could actually take a bullet behind a metal desk um, it, it behind a super barricaded door or something. Um, but you, you got to just, you know, sometimes the terrain of be that a building or whatever is going to constrain where you can hide. And you just want to take those kinds of things into mind and go for the better place. But that means think about the three or four places you'd hide in your organization if you had to, right? right. Ahead of time when you're not stressed out and, you know, maybe being shot at. Right. So you want to be obviously out of the potential active shooter's view. You want to be somewhere that ideally provides both that concealment and the cover, so could potentially provide protection if shots are fired in your direction. And also you would ideally have a hiding spot that doesn't restrict your options for movement out of there. Uh, you can also, you know, obviously lock the door, blockade the door with some heavy furniture. Uh, if your furniture doesn't move, um, then th there, are, there are some options out there. There's actually some products that, that companies can buy and provide for their employees that can make the door, um, you know, blockaded. And so, you know, if you have that option, do that. But again, this is after, <laughs> after you've uh, eliminated the run option. Uh, one sobering detail that I always remember from some of my training on active shooter, shooter scenarios comes from the Columbine shooting, which was a high school um, a long time ago now, uh, here in the United States, but it was a, it was a devastating shooting that happened in a high school in Colorado. And one thing that was so tragic about that situation is that many of the people who ended up dying were in the school library. And there were actually, uh, I think at least two exits from there. Um, they were hiding rather than leaving. And, um, you know, we didn't have this kind of training back then. Uh, it wasn't something that was as salient to us, unfortunately, as it is today. But I'll always run. Then, if you can't do that, then you hide. Um, you know. And you wanna... here's the thing: shooting and killing people is not easy, like in the movies. Hmm. Some numbskull that's come into your place of work is unlikely to be some SEAL-trained super sniper that can hit somebody at 300 yards with a nine mil pistol, right? That, right. That's and so if you're running and, you know, if you want to run, if somebody's directly behind you, run in a bit of a zigzag. It is hard to hit a moving target for the untrained individual. But if you are staying stuck in one spot and they're able to get up real close to you, 
Well, you, you statistically, your odds aren't as good as if you're actively running. So that that means getting outside and just hauling for it, do it. Uh, yeah. It's, it's going to be hard for somebody to hit a moving target. That's right. Now, going back to that hiding place, a couple other things you want to think about is silencing your cell phone. You, know, you don't want to draw attention to where you are, turn off any other kind of sources of noise that may be around you if there's a radio or TV that's on. Um, hide behind some large items, remain quiet. Uh, you know, if you can't uh, evacuate or hide out, you know, make sure you still try to remain calm, dial 911 if possible. And then if you can't run or hide and it really gets to the point of having to do something actively, that's when you fight. So it's run, hide, and as a last, I emphasize last resort, you can take some action against the active shooter. Yeah, so, you know, there's kind of thinking around active shooters. That there's the thinking about it before 9-11, right, mm. with the Twin Towers, and then after. Now, you know, it wasn't that people that weren't trained on active shooter stuff because cops and SWAT teams respond, and, that you know, they had a body of knowledge. But if you're on a plane anymore and somebody stands up with a gun or a box cutter or something like that, there's no longer will people just sit and say, hmm, well, I guess I'll see how this develops. You know, that right. was the old thinking. Now, you know that we got to bum rush this guy. And if I die doing it, then the next guy like we got to go until we eliminate this threat to our lives. It's the same thing. So if you can't run, you can't hide. You're going to have to go bananas and fight. And that means there's no like. 20% effort here for you. Mm -hmm. You may even take a bullet on the route to subduing that person, right? And so things, you want to act as aggressively as possible. Loud noises, screaming, throw stuff. You got that freaking sling line stapler sitting there on your desk? <laughs> well, like, you <laughs> you know, Milton, you know, you're going to throw yeah. that, buddy, right? Yeah, no, I, I, exactly. You know, you mentioned earlier that it is much harder in reality than in the movies or in a video game to actually hit hit anything, even if it's moving or even if it's stationary, right? Um, with a weapon, it's it's extremely hard if that, that target is, uh, you know, throwing things at you is um, making noise and all those types of, of actions. So those are some things you absolutely can do. You know, I, I remember back from some of my training on this, actually this goes back to some of my just uh, training on the use of deadly force. Um, and there's something, uh, I believe it's called the 21 foot rule, right? Which is where somebody is about 21 feet away from you and you have a weapon and it's maybe in a holster, they can probably get to you before you can even pull that weapon, right? Don't underestimate your ability to disrupt what's going on and, you know, charging at somebody, throwing something. Uh, if that's your, if that's your last resort, don't just sit there passively. Um, you got to fight. Yeah. So we have this thing and it's a decision-making you know, kind of model called the OODA loop. Mm. Right. And so if you know that that person's coming in, you know, the lay of the room and the land, that person doesn't. So for him to see you, and UDA stands for OODA, right? Observe, orient, decide, act. So if that shooter's coming in that room, he's going to have to, you know, and you start screaming and running at him, he's going to, one, observe, well, what's going on, mm -hmm. right? And 
orient towards you to, okay, I need to do something about this. He's going to have to decide to pull out his weapon or shoot. And I guarantee you, most people could be more on target throwing that big, heavy stapler than people can engage with a pistol or, you know, in some cases, a rifle, right? So observe, orient, decide. And then that guy's going to have to act by pulling the trigger. Now, he may just act by just start squeezing rounds off the minute you start yelling. But that's fine. That still gives you time because he's not observing and oriented in your direction. That's well said. So that's kind of what you should do at a basic level as an individual. Keep those things in mind. Run, hide, fight. But we also said that this is run, hide, fight, and more. You know, there's other things that you need to be thinking about. And now we're kind of moving on from the individual level to thinking a little bit more about your roles as uh, a leader, as a manager in an organization. And there are a number of things that you can do here. Some of this has to do with just your your position in the organization, but also in terms of things that perhaps you could train the rest of your organization on, or at least have as discussion points. Uh, so, you know, one thing to remember is that, you know, how you respond when law enforcement gets there. First of all, these things normally start and end within about, you know, 5, 10, 15 minutes. Um, something will happen pretty soon that will resolve this. Now, there's a lot that can happen in that time period, of course, but uh, police officers normally, you know, arrive in teams to something like this, maybe teams of four. They oftentimes are going to be wearing some sort of uniform and maybe they'll have other kinds of tactical equipment on them. They may not look exactly like your, you know, the regular cop that you would see on the street because they may have more, they may have a, a rifle with them, other types of protective equipment. Uh, they might use some tear gas or pepper spray to control the situation, which if that, get, I have been both uh, tear gassed and pepper sprayed as part of my military training and neither one are, are enjoyable. Um, so you're going to have to stay calm there. Uh, officers might be shouting and they may even push you or others to the ground. So they're not, they're not concerned first and foremost about your happiness in that moment. They are concerned and focused most expressly on eliminating the threat. Right. And, and so just be aware that regular numbskulls have this tactical armor and stuff too. That's true. Right. So be looking for signs, you know, are they clean cut? You know, definitely. <laughs> oh, look, this is not Bilson from accounting, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, these kind be just be aware, you know, they'll generally identify themselves, you know, if they're smart. But like we've seen cases where like up in Oregon, where we had legitimate um, policing forces and unmarked vans and no identification on them. So like that's. Just be watching for some of that stuff. Now, if somebody's coming in to enter and clear a building, they're generally going to have like a police badge, but you can buy those at the army thrift store, <laughs> right? So you just be looking for cues more than do they have police and how do they look before you just go running into their arms, okay? Yeah, well, you should run into their arms anyway, right? You should stay calm. Um, you know, as, as soon as you you'll get the sense that this is actually our police officers, more than likely, then put down anything that's in your hands. Keep your hands visible at all times because they're trying to figure out where the threat is, and and they don't. You don't want them to think that it's you. Um, you don't need to point, scream, or yell. They're trying to figure things out, and they probably already have an idea of what's going on. Uh, don't stop them to try to you know ask for help or directions. Uh, just just get out of there. Get out of there from the direction that they're coming in because, as you mentioned earlier, Chris, 
um, they, they're not, they're going to be coming in from a, a, a direction that's already uh, deemed to be cleared. relatively safe. Yeah, it's cleared. So so do that. And, now, and don't scream because right. that lets the shooter know where you are. Right. True. You know, and 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 if you're screaming, they can't listen and maintain situational awareness of which way they need to orient themselves to protect you as you run out. Yeah. Yeah. Now, once you get to a place, um, maybe it's outside of the building, um, you'll probably know what this place looks like. You know, there'll be things will be a little bit calmer. Um, there'll be people out there. Maybe there's someone trying to get information, either law enforcement or a 911 operator. If you're on the phone with 911. Um, if you know the location of the active shooter, obviously you tell them, try to describe uh, any physical description you may have. If there's more than one, obviously tell, uh, report that if there's more than one shooter, if there's any kinds of types of weapons, if there's, you know, maybe if you have some information about the number of potential victims, also share that. Yeah, and it's it's simple stuff like, hey, I saw two guys, one had a pistol and the other guy had a rifle, mm -hmm. right? That just lets them know what you know, you just in that moment, you want any information that can help you, you know, because this is what the police are doing. We got to get people out and then we got to go neutralize, yeah. and contain what's going on here. And and they they are they're on a hundred thousand times alert to try to be aware of every little piece. So anything you can help feed them to help them is um, good. It's a positive. Yeah. And, and again, don't be surprised that those first law enforcement officials on scene are not stopping to help victims. Um, their job is to neutralize a threat. So they're, they're going to be moving in quickly uh, and dealing with that. Now they will be followed by additional um, law enforcement and emergency medical uh, technicians and so forth to help those people. So that, that, that is happening. They're not forgetting about these people. Um, you know, help is on the way in that type of scenario. Uh, most likely if you do reach a kind of a safe point, you're probably going to be held in that area that they probably don't want you to leave at, right away, um, until the situation's under control. Uh, they may, if you're a witness, they, they will ask you questions and of course be helpful and don't leave until they tell you, you can go. So those are some things I think are really helpful for us to keep in mind as leaders, as managers, uh, and things to share perhaps with our staffs when we're doing this kind of training. Um, and, and going through this thought process with our people. So why don't we move now and, and talk a little bit about some considerations for human resource departments for the rest of the organization. And we have a bunch of different thoughts here. Um, again, we are pulling heavily from this uh, document from the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about training your your staff for an active shooter situation. What are some guidance points that we can share there? Well, one of the things that is real simple is just talking about it at all. Yeah. Like that's a real low that that can buy you so much uh, territory when you cover this. Oh, so talking about it at all and then having a plan that is socialized with the people in your organization so people know what to do. Yeah. So there are some components of an emergency action plan that the Department of Homeland Security outlines, and this would be something that you would create. Um, obviously, you do this before something happens. Don't wait until you um, would have liked to have had something like this. Create that emergency action plan, usually in coordination with your HR department. Maybe if you have some people who are focused on training, uh, you want to have some of the, the people who are smart about the facility itself. Um, 
you know, in on that conversation. Maybe it's your property manager, person who owns the facility. And, you know, you could even involve local law enforcement or emergency responders in that plan. You know, I had the opportunity many years ago to observe and be fairly close in the uh, the action of a large scale um, active shooter drill that we did um, at a university. And we had uh, involvement we, you know, from top leadership of the university set up an, an incident command center. We had people for, and this is all simulated, but it was, it was a phenomenal training experience, uh, had emergency personnel from local areas, you know, coordinating. We had representatives from local hospitals saying, how would we be reacting to these situations? It was very helpful. So, uh, come up with that, that plan. What does that look like for you and your organization? Right. And part of that plan should be, you know, now you have to have like fire escape stuff, right? And sure. points, you know, this way to the exit, this way to the exit. But one of the better practices is to have two signs for your floor, for each floor at every entrance that'll show the layout of the rooms on that building and make these Velcro attached to the wall. Hmm. So when you have a responder, when you have a, you know, you have that four-man fighting force that's clean, clearing rooms. They get to a new floor. They, they've never been in your building before because you just haven't run your exercise with them yet or whatever. They can just take that Velcro removable sign-off and use it as a map to help them. Ooh, I know if I open this door, there's two other doors in this room. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, these are the kinds of things that can just help people that aren't used to it. Also, if you have a guest, you know, they can, and there's active shooter, they can take one of those maps off the wall and, um, you know, use it to find their way out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, other parts of your emergency action plan should also include what is your emergency notification system? How would you let people know what's going on? How might you notify people who are at remote locations within the premises, you know, depending on kind of what your layout looks like? How would you notify local law enforcement, maybe local area hospitals, having all that information in one place? I mean, this doesn't this wouldn't necessarily take you that much time. You know, uh, if you had the right stakeholders in the room, you could probably figure this out in half a day and at least have some sort of good framework that then could be put out to your employees and help them stay safe in the event that something terrible like this happens. Um, now, moving beyond that, you could also do some actual training. Uh, so what are some things that you might want to think about in terms of uh, different pieces of that training? Well, something that I see missed often in, say, mid-sized organizations, even on the fire and the tornado stuff, is the line leaders, managers, directors don't know. Like if you go, hey, how many people are on your team? If it's a small team, they'll be like eight. But hmm. sometimes they have to stop and count. Yeah. And so if you got to go meet for a fire drill in the parking lot across the street, how do you know that everybody's got everybody? You can say, well, I need all leadership over here. Do you have accountability of everybody out of the building? We got everybody but Tom. Yeah. And we can't get him on his phone. You know, I mean, this is just in the military. We do it all. Yeah. Personal accountability is so key. I just mm -hmm. don't see that intensity in the. You know that I'm so glad you brought that up, Chris. That is an amazing um, point that really should be emphasized because you're right. You know, in the military, we are very concerned about making sure we know who is where and do you have everybody, you know, all of those types of items in you know, civilian life. It's much less of an emphasis. Um, I would argue that a, as a good supervisor, 
you know, make sure that you know how many people are under your purview and their names. You also, with their permission, perhaps, uh, you may have company policies about this or, or people may have different ideas about it. You know, even having, you know, their, their contact information and maybe even contact information for, um, you know, their next of kin, um, have that somewhere accessible. Having those types of uh, that information as well as the knowledge is is super helpful and, and really should be just kind of part of manager training, I think. Like just drilling that into people. Hey, these are your people and you need to take care of them. You need to at least know who's on your team and and how to get in touch with them. Right. And And just be careful. So, you know, if you guys talk through your communication plan, mm. um, because sometimes it's not appropriate for a line manager to go say, hey, yeah, I saw your husband bleeding out as we ran yeah, out of the building, true. like in that moment, right? So talk about that. Consult with your legal department on what it should be. But sometimes there can just be a, hey, Margaret's safe with us. Or, you know, if you're at a place where she left her cell phone or I mean, these kinds of things, you know, just just think through that kind of contact plan. Um, and just it's personal accountability. Mm -hmm. um, and so somehow, right, because people come and go. And it's hard for people, the most senior level person in your organization or over that building to know that we have 400 and 465 people in our building today, and we have 460 here. We're missing five. Like, it right. could be hard to get that, but you can help by having that structure and level of accountability. Right. You know, some other things that you may want to incorporate into your training exercises, and again, I'm pulling from... Uh, the guidance from the Department of Homeland Security is, you know, what do gunshots sound like? And you, know, you and I probably take that for granted that we know what it sounds like. Um, and everyone thinks they know what it sounds like because they've seen movies. Uh, but oftentimes I think that it could be mistaken for, you know, fireworks. So oftentimes it's more of a popping sound, right? And and keeping that in mind, that kind of training, um, how you might react and actually having some drills, Right. Um, you know, who's going to call 911? How do you react when law enforcement arrives? And, and certainly training those things that we talked about earlier in the episode of run, hide, and fight in that order so that everyone is aware of, of those, those different elements. Yeah, the, the physical layout of offices anymore, you know, they say barricade yourself. Mm -hmm. Well, all these cubicles are screwed to the floor. <laughs> And are you going to put that Air, Herman Miller Aeron roller chair up against the wall? <laughs> hey, if you got one of those, you're at a good company. You should probably <laughs> stick around, right? But you, you can't put a bunch of roller chairs. That's not. And so like one of the Haven Lock, H-A-V-E-N uh, Lock, Haven Lock, mm -hmm. and some other people have some solutions that deal with this. Now, but here's the thing. Don't just go installing these willy-nillies. And this is more for my entrepreneur founders that are going to just, oh, we'll save a million bucks and just do this ourselves. And you could make it to where people can get barricaded in and can't get out, mm. right? So you should have somebody with a technical, tactical background, maybe even let your local police force come in and start talking about, okay, if we don't have good egress, right, in and out of this building, right? Where should we have some strong points where people could hold up? Maybe we get some reinforced steel doors there. There's people that can come in, give you an assessment, and then go do the work if you want to save the bucks and not, you know, pay a vendor to come change out your doors and that kind of stuff. Um, another key point is on those maps, don't just put the doors in the, the buildings. Also notate the windows that are can be used 
as an exit should somebody need to crawl out a window. Mm. Mm. Those are some great points. You know, I, I think it also uh, is important to, you know, think about this, and we could probably do a whole nother episode or episodes on just the topic of workplace violence. Um, but, you know, you can't hurt your organization by fostering a respectful workplace, by, you know, being aware of some of the indications of that, that can lead to workplace violence and taking some good actions accordingly. Uh, so I think that that's, that's another thing just to keep in mind as, as you're, you're thinking about this whole issue. Um, I'd like to turn our attention now, perhaps, to uh, this article that I actually wrote and published a number of years ago, but I think it's, it's certainly still relevant. And this is an article in the journal People and Strategy, and the title is High Reliability HR, Preparing the Enterprise for Catastrophes. And we'll post a link to that in the show notes, of course. And what I tried to do in this article was using that, actually that large-scale um, university uh, exercise for active shooter events. I, I did some research along with that and then tried to use some of the lessons from that to suggest maybe here's some things that are relevant for the function of HR. And what's interesting is that when I was going through the publication process, I, I received some feedback from some reviewers who said, you know, I'm not sure if this is really what HR does. And I, my point was, yeah, I know, <laughs> right? This isn't what how HR oftentimes thinks, uh, but HR functions should perhaps think in these different ways. So it was meant to be a little bit, um, you know, divergent thinking from, from the status quo of how we oftentimes approach HR. And so, you know, based upon kind of what happened and what I saw and what oftentimes happens in these active shooter events, um, you know, I looked at these different characteristics of what we call high reliability and how these might relate to what HR does. So, you know, maybe we can just go through a couple of these um, and, you know, talk about the HR, the role of HR in a potential uh, prevention of a, an active shooter scenario. And the first uh, thing that high reliability organizations do, high reliability organizations are those that deal with a lot of advanced technology. We would expect them to have more accidents than they do. So, for example, um, naval aircraft carriers, nuclear power plants, those are the kind of the oftentimes uh, off-sited examples. Uh, but the first thing that they do is they have a preoccupation with failure, right? They have a healthy sense of exactly what types of hazards, threats, and vulnerabilities are out there, and they're mindful of them. So with regard to HR, some things that you could do, you know, systematically review those possibilities, have some scenario-based planning and training and communicate that throughout the organization. HR absolutely could be a huge part of that. Yeah, I this idea where HR is like, um, okay, we got 50 employees, we're going to get a breastfeeding room, and okay, we did this so we don't get sued, and oh, look, we got the 1099 documents filled out correctly, and then with anything, <laughs> you know, and these are the same HR professionals that are saying, God, just not challenged in my job. And yeah. like, there's... There is a huge swath of opportunity for you to start punting your value up at the strategic level, right? So, you know, getting involved in, and saying like, hey, we need active shooter uh, plans and measurements and these kinds of things, you That's know, right. that, that that is your case. Hey, you know what? And it's not just that. We need some physical security measures here. And that stuff. Now, HR, you know, sometimes, you know, buildings, this will fall more to, say, building security sure. and enterprise level organization. That's fine. But for a lot of organizations, 
fire drills, accountability, these kinds of things kind of fall under your purview. And even if they don't fall directly under your purview as an HR function, HR can function as the connective tissue for these different stakeholders within the organization, bringing them together, facilitating the conversation. So the, uh, you know, we talked about this idea. And, and of, if you can't keep your humans alive, you have no resources, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, you gotta, if you care for your people, you right. can't have your annual performance and views if everybody's shot up because you are asleep at the wheel here. <laughs> so, um, you know, we've talked about this idea of preoccupation with failure. Another hallmark of high reliability organizations is a reluctance to simplify interpretations. So this is, you know, kind of resisting that urge, that pressure that we have to um, clearly see things as being, you know, cause and effect relationships, um, and instead trying to seek holistic perspectives on a situation. So with that being said, there are a few things that HR departments perhaps could promote here. What are some of those, Chris? Yeah, so one of the things you want to do is like, train on what they call root cause analysis. And that, that's just like, hey, what caused all this stuff to go? So what, you know, some of the stuff you can do is just look at what makes somebody more prone to be one of these things and mm. having some training around that kind of stuff. And then another thing is when you do your drills, which you should, you should have an actor after action review. You know, hey, what went well? What didn't go so well? You know, things we should keep doing, things we should probably not do. Yeah, that's great. You know, another thing that HR uh, could do with regard to this this idea is they could develop leaders who support and expect and reward a climate in the organization of healthy questioning, right? You want people to say, hey, you know, this this happened and this doesn't look right, or um, perhaps we should do some more training on this and having that be met with acceptance and appreciation versus resistance. That's that's another helpful thing that you can do. Yeah. And this isn't just for active shooter stuff. This is for anything in your organization, having yeah. a climate that allows that kind of learning and improvement. And, and this is the thing, having more than one lens for problem solving. And you know where I see this really biting uh, orgs are they have this idea of the thinker versus the doer. Right. I'm the manager. I think up the plans. You're the you know, minions. You do the plans. Well, when it comes to being a high reliability organization, one that can learn, thrive and adapt in the face of these kinds of situations or even business challenges, firing on all the cylinders of your organizations, everybody being a part of that thinking process and problem solving is important. And here's the thing. There's no silver bullet. And, and I see people use the silver bullet thing to shut down conversation. Mm. Well, there's not one thing that'll get it. Or, well, this isn't a perfect solution. Well, you know, an imperfect plan or something that gives you a, some modicum of chance is better than just nothing. That's right. That's right. So the next one is what we call sensitivity to operations. And this is about making sure you have close connections between leaders and those who are most likely to first notice or some sort of subtle sign of an emerging threat or, um, and also promoting that culture of continual feedback. And so, you know, a few things that HR could do here is really helping your managers be good managers, right? That they're promoting these positive employee relations, uh, that they are rewarding and recognizing people who rapidly re report things that are going wrong, um, either small errors or potential risks and hazards, and really having that, that healthy, frequent two-way feedback conversations occurring between supervisors and employees. 
Um, that's going to help the organization overall be more in tune with what's going on and what it should be doing to be ready for these types of events. And it also ties back to that idea that, hey, we're also probably promoting a much healthier culture and climate this way as well. Right. And don't don't just leave your managers out to do this for their minions. You need to be obsessing your managers because those are the guys that curate the culture. And if they're creating toxic cultures, this is where you have this when we've all seen those psychopath managers and maybe they drive some results or they've got some in with the CEO or what, whatever it is. Watch out because those guys can curate that exact climate that you don't want that leads to these you know, really bad outcomes. That's right. So the next one is commitment to resilience, right? So helping to cultivate some knowledge and skill throughout the organization regarding those first responses and some of the things you may need to do afterwards to do when a threat emerges. Uh, so certainly HR has got to be involved with training people on these items. I think, you know, just have your HR folks listen to this episode or take a look at that article from the Department of Homeland Security, as well as the article that we're referencing right now. Um, you know, run, hide, fight should be something that that HR is helping to promote and, and being systematic about delivering that training and perhaps even doing some simulations and exercises to that effect. Now, most people don't even know the term run, hide, fight, but everybody mm. knows stop, drop and roll. Right. You know, if you're on That's fire, true. don't just run. So this needs to be as common as that, at least in a society like ours. That's just there's guns freaking everywhere. Right. At least in the United States. Right. So our international listeners are probably thinking, oh, gosh, you crazy Americans. Well, obviously, this can't happen anywhere. Right. There have been incidents that have happened outside of the United States. And, yeah, we probably have more guns here, but um, certainly something that's of use everywhere. Uh, the last one is what we call a deference to expertise. And this is about pushing decision making authority to the subject matter experts instead of just relying on hierarchy or rank. So, you know, hire those people who are, you know, have those areas of expertise you need, develop skill and knowledge among your key employees, um, and establish some of those decision-making principles that value expertise over rank. And that's helpful with regard to um, any type of, you know, risk mitigation or helping an organization avoid catastrophe, because if you have that, that cultural mindset of, hey, we're going to let those people who have the most expertise make decisions then you're going to have more luck in uh, catching small errors before they become big ones. And that's, that's the key here um, to really, you know, making sure that you don't have uh, a catastrophe in your organization. Um, you know, there are a couple other things that maybe we could go through just some primary lessons and some supplementary lessons from this article that, that I um, wrote a, a few years ago. Uh, and you know, you'll find these, if you're so, so inclined, uh, you'll find them on page 37 of the, of the article. And so, you know, one of the primary lessons here is that HR leaders really need to be at the forefront of publicizing those basic procedures. Yeah. You got to socialize these things and then you can't just publish them. You need to train people on the roles and responsibilities for these types of incidents. And do you know, what's cool about all this stuff? is by going through this exercise with this, you're going to actually reap benefits and the broader behavioral and operational capabilities of your orgs because people start to have that learning and look for the improvement mindset that they can take to other places. I mean, it's it's just great. Yeah, no, that's great. 
you know, another thing you should do is certainly share and build upon the existing knowledge. So maybe there's some sort of, um, you know, new technologies or other ways of dealing with this that, that emerge, you know, definitely keep that as part of your, of your mindset. You know, another thing that you need to do is just anticipating change and having this mindset of vigilance. And it's not fun with regard to these types of scenarios. We get it. Um, but having some of that vigilance is very important. It can be helpful and certainly even save lives in a situation like this. Yeah. And so you you get gung-ho, you hear this episode and you're rah, rah, re, let's do it in my org. And you, you have plans, you maybe even do an exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you put that stuff in a binder and maybe the HR you know director takes another job and it changes out and it just grows dust and people... You know, it's not even probably worth going through it the first time if you don't kind of systematically update that training, maybe make it an annual event similar to fire drills and that kind of stuff, and then budget for some either, you know, training simulations or some time to at least talk and go over what the existing plan is and maybe update it if needed. That's right. You know, we had a really interesting finding from the research that I did that supports this article uh, you know, from this large-scale training exercise that that was held on a university campus, where we, you know, we asked via surveys, um, you know, about people's uh, their optimism about their group's abilities and their ability to work with other people. Long story short is that you know you've got to have some good cross-functional collaboration within your organization for a whole host of reasons, right? It's helpful for idea sharing, breaking down those silos. But it's also helpful in emergencies, right? If I have worked with maybe somebody from another department or something before, um, and, and that's a norm within my organization, then I start to have more trust. And if something actually happens, an emergency of some sort, a, a crisis, guess what? We're going to be able to work better together in that scenario. And so uh, cross-functional collaboration, always a good thing. And I think the last thing that I would certainly recommend to HR folks out there is, you know, facilitate that collaboration with some of your partner organizations. And maybe this is something, someone in HR doing it. Maybe it's someone else. Um, you might be working with somebody in business continuity, someone in your security department, someone in your facilities department. Um, but work with those law, local law enforcement folks to provide them with some contingency plans, especially if you're a large organization, right? Um, you know, with a, with a big campus. Help that, that collaboration flow so that you can get the best knowledge from them and so they know what your contingency plans are. Yeah. And, you know, if you're in a big one of these high rise buildings with, you know, maybe you are the bigger org and you have eight of the 10 floors, you might reach out to those organizations that are in those other two floors and invite them to join your drill. Right. Mm. So it's a building effort rather than just your single org effort. Um, Those those are some things that you kind of want to look at. So. So, Ben, bring us on home. What we talked about today. So this was a tough topic today. Not not quite a, a fun topic, but a very important topic. We talked about active shooters at work. We talked about this importance of the idea of run, hide, and fight. Uh, we talked about some other things. We talked about you know what active shooters are, what you should do in those situations. We talked about some roles for leaders and managers. And we talked about some considerations for HR departments and the rest of the organization in helping the organization to minimize the, the probability of some sort of catastrophe. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com. 
where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.